is Our American Stories. And now, here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is just drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've got to have the rent. <laughs> he come around. I got the rent. It's not even due yet. It's the 10th. Come on, I need it. <laughs> well, let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month. Every couple hours. Hey, look, I'm going to need some more of the rent. This building's falling apart. Things came up. Comes home early from a party. Landlord's in the crib going through it. What are you doing in my house? Ah! Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors, and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. (laughs) So I was really breaking from tradition. And uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having, and they had my dad come and talk to me, and my dad takes me outside, and he's like, listen. He says, to be an actor is a lonely life. Everybody wants to make it, and you might not make it. And I said to my dad, well, well that depends on what making it is, Dad. He was a smart, smart-ass kid. It depends on what making it is, Dad. He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a teacher. I said, if I could make a teacher salary doing comedy, I think that's better than being a teacher. And he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of it. Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience. But he was booed off stage. Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself on the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he'd turn down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and 
my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was a, Dad was down, half-baked, didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that. Because it was a real cool script. And then I saw it. I was like, hey, man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello, Hollywood. They're like, hello, Dave. <laughs> They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her. Maybe, and they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast a girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover variety. Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from... Newsweek, 60 Minutes, everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or something. I'm like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. and He went from being my father to what are we going to do? With the body, within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like, the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and you know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. It wasn't living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Dang, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. And, uh, New Year's Eve, 1999, I, I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, <laughs> saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do, and they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa, and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I called home, and people would be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story, and he was like, yeah, rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. 
And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people got to sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh, my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not going to lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But, you know, it was cool, man. The first time I went back out and did stand-up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and... Um, Club sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low and they were just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best. Oh, man, I was just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table, and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger 
than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, someone who I've never met, and I just realize how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community. And he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find a way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So, although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle testament to being true to yourself he walked away from a 50 million dollar contract fame and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself dave chappelle is not your average hollywood story for our american stories i'm jesse edwards We continue with our American stories, and now we bring you the story of someone whom you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. John Farnham grew up on a ranch in Helena, Montana, and here he is with his story. I was, uh, I was adopted. My mom and dad tried to have children, couldn't get pregnant, went to Catholic Charities, and Catholic Charities helped them get my sister, Janae. Shortly after they got Janae, Catholic Charities called and said, I know that you have Janae. Would you consider taking another baby? We have a young mom coming and we need to find a home. My birth mother, she was 14 when she got pregnant with me. And so my mom and dad said the ultimate that changed my life. They said, yes, we, we would love that. Right after they got me, 
my parents ended up getting pregnant. And so I have a biological brother to my adoptive parents and a biological sister to my adoptive parents. So it all happened very rapidly. From the time they got Janae till the time that my youngest sister was born, there is only five and a half years difference between the oldest and the youngest child in four kids. So it was like a daycare center all the time at our house. Throw in a cousin or two, some friends, and that's how our life rolled. We always were surrounded by tons of family. Part of that, I think, is also being raised on the ranch. It was such a communal part of our life. Food is very important, so we would have dinners together every single night. My grandfather and grandmother lived on the ranch. My uncle lived on the ranch. Everybody just kind of, the nucleus of our family was the ranch. When I was six years old, my dad got diagnosed with a frontal lobe brain tumor, which affects 100% of your executive function. They decide they need to operate on his brain, and they did brain surgery very successfully. However, it changed who he is as a human being. Anytime you have that kind of trauma in your brain, it dramatically shifts who you are. Prior to his brain tumor, he would take all of us kids out camping. He would water ski with us on his shoulders. He would play the piano just by ear. He never had piano lessons and could play anything he heard. He's an incredibly brilliant man. After his brain tumor, uh, that man no longer existed. And so being six, it was really hard for me growing up to understand who our friends remembered as my dad and the stories they would tell about him because they weren't stories that I remembered. The stories that I remembered were much more challenging. They were much more traumatic. It was much more stressful because all of a sudden we went from a two-parent income in this home to just my mom. Not only just my mom, but my mom having to care for all of his children and care for my dad. The dynamic of what she thought she was, her married life was going to look like changed so dramatically. And my dad was only 35 years old when this happened. So his life too changed dramatically. 35 year olds go to work every day. 35 year olds, their network of friends are people that they tend to work with. All of a sudden my dad didn't have that. And so there were some really dark days growing up. And if it weren't for the family and my mom's friends from her work, I don't know how, how we would have done it. I don't know how my mom did it quite frankly. Um, she is a hero to me. She, I, um, she passed away two years ago, and the, the ultimate the last thing I said to her was a thank you for saying yes. The yes changed my life. And the yes was when Catholic Charities called. So if ever I were to get a tattoo, it would be the word yes, because that so is also the way I try to live my life. Be open to opportunities. Be open to what comes your way and say yes. You never know how it's gonna change someone's life or your own. I was a student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie and my grandmother, uh, my dad, my adopted dad's mother had passed away. And I, it, this was in January and I thought, Man, this hurts. Why does this hurt so badly? Because, I mean, she's not my blood. It shouldn't hurt. She's my grandmother, I know, but it's, you know, not my blood. Just thinking, thinking too, you know, too much. And so, at that point, I decided I really wanted to find my birth mother. So I told my mom and my dad, and they're like, anything we can do to help you, we are happy to do. 
and we've always told you that and, and we stand by that. So she gave me the lawyer at Catholic Charities who handled my case. I reached out and they said, you know, write a letter to your birth mother. In that letter, you can say whatever you want, but send it to us, we'll send it on to her. So I did that and I called about a, five days later. Have you heard anything from my mother? No, uh-uh. And this went on. I would call every day and my ideas of hope and that I had this other family out there somewhere that was as crazy and wild and fun and dynamic as my adopted family, those ideas and dreams and wishes started dissipating. And I started getting a little anxious and a little bit angry because I wasn't hearing back from her. And I thought, well, how, how dare she? I just, all I need to know is, do I have anything to worry about medically? I don't need anything from her. I don't want anything from her. I simply want to know that everything is going to be fine, that I want to know her story. I want her to know I'm, I'm in great hands, that I have a wonderful, loving family. So I asked the paralegal in moments of frustration, I said, what is plan B? Because I'm not satisfied not knowing now. And she said, well, we can go through the Office of Vital Statistics in Montana and track every time that she got married or changed her name or changed her address. We can, we can track her down. And I said, okay, I, that's good to know that there's a plan B. Well, from January to spring break, which was in March, zero word from my birth mother. So I went home for spring break and called Catholic Charities and said, okay, I just arrived at the ranch. I'm in Montana. Let's go and do plan B. I'll be up to your office in 25 minutes. And they said, give me, give me five minutes. I'll call you right back. So they called right back two minutes later. And they said, what do you want to know? We, we have your record. It's fully up to date and you can know anything you want. And I said, I don't want to know anything right now over the phone. Uh, I'm going to come to your office and we're going to sit with my mom and dad and we'll learn about my birth mother together. And we sat there and, and got the basics of my birth mother and she was at the time a student at the University of Utah finishing up her architecture degree. It was finals week for her so timing was, was not ideal. And it wasn't ideal for my adopted family, certainly. Over the course of the next seven days, I was on the phone with my birth mother in my bedroom learning about her, having her learn about my life. And it would be for hours and hours at a time. All the while, my family is outside my bedroom door hearing this, seeing this, witnessing this, knowing that I am busy developing this relationship with the woman who gave me away for adoption and who blessed me to be with this family. I never realized what the optic of that looked like until afterwards. When, when my birth mother she would check in with Catholic Charities on me every single year. Anytime she got married, and there were four of them, four marriages, anytime she moved, phone numbers in those days didn't port with you. Phones always changed when you got a new address. And so she kept my file completely current with every time she moved, every phone number change, every address. But she would call every single year and check on me. And one time, they slipped at Catholic Charities. When I was 12 years old, when my birth mother called Catholic Charities to check on me, Catholic Charities had not disclosed my name up until this time, and they accidentally said, John is doing fine, he is in school. And so now my birth mother knew that I was John. My adopted family had to be told because they disclosed my name. She didn't know my last name, but she knew my name. And it terrified my parents because that was the first time that they knew that my birth mother was checking in on me every single year. And 
I didn't realize this until I was an adult and my mom, my adopted mom told me what had happened and how it rocked her world. How she really thought that my birth mother was coming back to get me. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, a love story, no doubt, and very different than most of ours, but in many ways the same too. John Farnham's story, here on Our American Stories. We're back with Our American Stories and the story of John Farnham, the gay son with a Catholic adoptive mother and a Mormon birth mother. Only in America, folks. And by the way, I love that he said the yes of the adoptive mother changed my life. It's how I live my life. Say yes. A really fascinating guy John Farnham is. Let's continue with his story. You can imagine that knowing the dynamic, it's very easy to think you understand why you were given up for adoption. It's pretty clear to me. She was a young mother, 14-year-old, 15-year-old. She, she should have been adopted. That thinking was not really her thinking at all of why she gave me up. Her thinking was she didn't feel loved in her own home and she wasn't going to bring a baby into that home. So it was a much more complex decision, a 15-year-old making that kind of a decision. That's pretty profound and really deep thinking. So the scenario of the pregnant teen going away to school is exactly the scenario that my birth mother was under. Sent away to school, in air quotes, to the Florence Crittenden home to have a baby. Out of the eyes of her family, out of the eyes of her family's friends, she was sent away to go have a baby. Yet that didn't stop her parents, my birth grandparents, from coming to Helena when I was born, bringing clothing to take me home in, um, and raise me. And for her to say absolutely not, no. So I, I have such respect for my mom for being strong, sticking to her decision, and doing what was best truly for me. She got pregnant again two years later and was old enough at that point, she was 17, that she kept my half-sister. And so she moved out of the house and she raised her as her daughter. And so when, when I'm back for spring break and I'm getting to know my birth mother in front of my adopted family, they already have this anxiety that I could have been taken from them at any time. It became really clear the night before I left, there were a lot of tears at my house and a lot of tears of fear and really hurt feelings that my sister, I remember Anne saying, what if you like your other sisters more than you like me? What if we never see you again? What if you like this family more than you like us? And it was heartbreaking. It was the most heartbreaking thing I think I've ever done. And I realized at that moment, the gravity of what they had experienced over the course of seven days. And how do I fix this? 
there's no way to fix it. It's just to continue to love and be loved. Um, I tried my best to fix it. I wrote little love notes on stickies and hid them everywhere, hid them in food containers, hid them in the remote control batteries, hid them in my mom's purse. I mean, everywhere you could imagine, I hid love notes to my sisters, my brother, my mom and dad to assure them that I was going nowhere. It just wasn't my intent at all, but they didn't know that. They only know what they witnessed, and what they witnessed was an entire week of me on the phone with my mother getting to know her and her getting to know me. So this is March, and I learned from my birth mom that she had not told her family about me. She also never received the letter that was sent. Even to this day, she has never received that letter. So the first thing she had to do was tell my sisters that they have a brother. And my sisters, when I met them for the first time, they were like, now we understand. Every spring, mom would go into this deep depression. She was missing you. She knew your birthday. She knows your birthday. You, every spring, we would lose her for a while. She just would slip into this depression. And now we understand why. Well, it was only a week later that I got back to college. My birth mom drove from Salt Lake City, Utah to Laramie to meet me for the first time. And it was really a moment of anxiety, as you can imagine. The arrangement was I would meet her at the hotel. Well, the day leading up to our meeting, she, she arrived in the evening, it was really stressful. I go to her hotel. The hotel has exterior doors, so there's no interior hallway. I knock on her door, she opens the door, and I'm blown away. Blown away because I had often wondered if I were ever in a room with my birth mother, would I be able to pick her out? Absolutely. I looked at this woman and she hugged me so tight and all I wanted to do was push her away to look at her because I, lo I was looking in the mirror. I could not believe I could look so much like another human being in my life. It was so amazing to me. We had two entirely different perspectives on that meeting. She was reuniting with a son she has been missing for 24 years. I am meeting an adult, and I cannot believe this adult looks just like me. And so our perspectives were so incongruous and so interesting. It was, it was a fascinating moment. Here's what I remember most about, uh, second most about that moment of meeting her. Um, she had me go down to her car with her to get her handgun out of the vehicle because she travels with a handgun as a single woman. And I thought, oh my Lord. Now, I'm not anti-gun, I, I grew up with guns, but I just thought, how interesting. You know, our guns were to go and get gophers and, you know, recreate. Hers was really for self-protection and I never thought about using a gun in that way until I met my birth mother. It was like this regressive behavior. We did things like she wanted to take me to the zoo. It was short of just tying a balloon onto my wrist and taking me through the zoo. It was just shy of that. And this went on for the whole weekend. And it was really an important, I think, time for me, and obviously an important behavior for her, to have kind of some of those years condensed into some experiences that she didn't get. Well, 
Well, as you can imagine, there is a lot of tears, a lot of apologizing, a lot of I'm sorry, and, and I, I can't accept her apology. She gave me an incredible life because it could have gone the other way easily. She opened doors for me that never would have been opened before. She introduced me and gave me the opportunity to be introduced to an incredibly loving family. I want to share with you a Thanksgiving that I had probably about five years ago. And we are all sitting around the table, Tracy's children, Tara and Steve, um, my mom, Trina, and Paul and I. And my mom says, let's go around the table and say the things we're most thankful for. And almost every one of them were thankful that we were together for the first time ever at a holiday and that Paul and I came to spend time with them. And I thought this was the most beautiful demonstration of love and of understanding that I'd ever seen. We were all in her home, around her table, and grateful and loving on one another. It was probably the most special Thanksgiving I've ever had. The turkey got burnt because my mom is not a cook. But when my mom and I were in the kitchen kind of wrapping up the meal, I remember vividly the sounds coming from the living room. And it was all giggles and all love. And it was beautiful. Being adopted, I'm very close to adoption, very close to foster care work, very close to the conditions and the ideas around improving outcomes for kids who are in the foster care system. Um, the idea of adopting an older child is something that is appealing to me. And here is why. If my mom were alive, I would still be calling her for her goulash recipe. I talk to my mom more now that she has passed away than I did even when she was here. Um, kids still need parents. Whether they are 18 or 25 or 48, kids still need parents. And for a foster kid to age out of the system with no parent, it's just, it's hard to imagine. Um, it was a good friend of mine, right after my mom died, and I said, I just have this instinct I want to call her. And she said, don't worry about calling, just talk to her. She's listening, talk to her just as you're driving or whenever, whenever you want to. And it was true. That's how I talk to her more now that she's passed than when she was alive. I talked to her when I was going to pick out the Christmas tree. My mom and dad would always come to Denver. We would go pick our Christmas tree out together. And my mom would sit there and watch me decorate it and, and tell stories and sing Christmas carols. She could still do that. She could still be there to pick out the Christmas tree. I just had to share it with her. I can't imagine what heaven looks like with my mom there and my grandmother and my aunts and because our family is wild and crazy. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know if God was is ready for this, but he's got it. He's got them all. And the, it, I bet it's a, a party up there. No, no question. I, I am, cannot wait to get there because <laughs> it's going to be fun. And that was John Farnham. And what a story. What a beauty. By the way, what a decision is birth mother made. She didn't feel loved in her own home and didn't want to bring up a baby in that home. And John had noted that was profound thinking for a girl because, my goodness, she was all at 14. She was a girl. She wasn't a woman yet. What a sensitive soul John was and that now he thinks deeply about adopting an older child. And, my goodness, there's no greater gift you can give to anybody 
than to not let a foster kid age out of the system because then they never have a parent, ever. And what a thing. I know I still talk to my dad. 88 years old, I still talk to him. My mom has passed. I still talk to her all the time. And I can't imagine, it's unimaginable, living life without a parent, without that kind of unconditional love. John Farnham's story, by the way, this adopted child is the deputy disruptor at the Mortgage Family Foundation, and he has helped give away $100 million so far. A love story that continues. John Farnham's story here on Our American Story. is our American stories and no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey teams still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980 we want to hear it all over again this adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story we promise to raise the requisite lumps in the requisite throats adding new details to an all-too-familiar picture. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big bad Soviet bear in the United States in the Olympics the confluence of events was so extraordinary it can never happen again nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore our hostages had been taken and we couldn't get them back the Red Army went into Afghanistan we couldn't get them out It might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader, who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, began to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. 
In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans, especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home. So in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He'd always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. And he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach all fixed all politics, and I went through the whole thing, and finally, my father said, you're done. I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping, keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach, get your ass in the locker room, wish your teammates well, and get your ass home. That was my father, God rest his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home, I'm watching this thing unfold. The Americans got hot, and they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me, he says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? And just bang That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part will be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviet's communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tridiak. You score on Tridiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland, and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, 
the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, how many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn? We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games when we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. The Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and, you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us in ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. Well, maybe if they hit him, they won't have time to hit each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be your coach, but I won't be your friend. And I'm like, boy, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you 
are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're gonna have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem, we'll work now. Go line. He's standing there with his suit on, and he makes us all get behind the net, and on the goal line, and he starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. 10 or 12 of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again! And we did them for about 45 minutes to an hour. The rink attendant turned the lights off on us and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. that moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me and he's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know he's Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. 
assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Her, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman Jack O'Callaghan. And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Herb never did anything on a whim. He planned. And I think he felt that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more yeah, test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun. Have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him. We didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting elbow. Did you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point, given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the Big Bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. embassy, yelling Magbar Amrika, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. This morning, for the first time... Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time. The period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day, and with the Soviets on American soil, they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Ruzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33 to 4. The seventh-seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2 to 1 late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game and you just got the feeling, and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, 
Well, it's it's not to be. Jimmy, come on now! And Brooks is pulling goalie Jim Craig for an extra skater to try to go, tie it up. No With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. Fighting for control of the puck with 29 seconds to play. Baker on it! No Baker! He was just trying to get on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. And the Americans in the key game in the first round tie it up. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia, underdogs again, in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, they've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores. Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Prescott, he scores. And they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. is able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, 
you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept whetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, The Miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. American Stories, and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. To relax them, to keep them focused, and also plan and say, hey, someone's going to beat those son of a guns. Then, on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant, we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment Tonight. was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. This is your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was, beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three. USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in I remember for the first five or six minutes feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. Shot and it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first and he winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. Up ahead to Schneider. Schneider goes in! Schneider! 
The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I start to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. And I remember seeing Mark Johnson go, no, like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. And made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Trediak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the, the Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11-2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. And that's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat down, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. That's a long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score, and I knew that. Too much time, too much time. We can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. It went on forever. The time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down. It just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but the Kalov has the puck. 28 seconds. The crowd going insane. Carlemont. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. The entire U.S. bench cleared. Everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by weepy state troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz 
one of the world's largest supercarriers, flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella. Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible. If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your grave. Then he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. The Olympics broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games, because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard, and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big, doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg. And I'll never forget that day. I don't, if you were around, you didn't either. 
you knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. And I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team. One of my dearest friends died in the World Trade Center, visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatini's. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatinis for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story. The greatest hockey story here on Our American Stories. The 1980 Dream Team. The real Dream Team. The U.S. Olympic Hockey Team. <laughs> 